Well, remain standing, please, and let's take out that wonderful garden that God has given to us, His Word, and let's turn to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3, and follow along as I read verses 20 through 35 this morning. Mark 3, verses 20 through 35, let us give heed to this as God speaks to us through His Word this morning. Mark writes, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your precious word. We pray that we would find it so that we would evaluate it as the precious treasure, the precious garden that it is. We pray, Father, that we would find our armor there, that we would find in your word all things needful for us. We pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would bless this time. We pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. We pray that we would come away refreshed, that we would come away rejoicing in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, we've been quite a few weeks so far in Mark's gospel, and um, I don't know about you, but I am thoroughly enjoying going through it, uh, you know, no matter how many times we read through the Gospels and read the life of Christ, we learn more, we are more in awe, we are more humbled as we consider uh, what God did for us as it's explained to us in the life of Christ. And when Jesus first came on the scene, as he began his ministry, there were a lot of questions that arose about him. Who was he? 
How did he get, we've, we've seen this, how did he get this teaching that he was giving that came with such authority? How was it that he had the ability to heal with a touch, with a word? How did he presume to, to have the authority to forgive sins, which he presumed to do and then proved that he did have by the healing that he had done? A lot of questions about Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at one particular question that is not put in the scriptures in, in the way that I am going to ask it this morning, but one particular question that arose during this time in Jesus' ministry that we're looking at. A question that we will see was raised by two different groups of people and that was expressed differently by those two groups. And the question that is being raised, the question that we want to consider as we look at Mark's gospel this morning, is this. What's up with Jesus? What is, what is he doing? What is motivating him in his ministry? What causes him to do the things that, that the people are seeing that he does? What's enabling him in his ministry? What is his purpose? What is his intention? What's up? And the proposals that we're going to see, and there are two of them, they really come in the form of two suppositions about Jesus, two speculations about, about him and about what he's doing, two different evaluations from these two different groups of people. And as we get started, and, and I do hope this morning and every Sunday morning that after we finished reading our passage that you have left your Bible or kept your Bible out, uh, that you are following along as we look at these words that God has given to us. But as we get started, in this passage we are seeing something in Mark and about the way that Mark presents some of his material, a method that he uses, sort of a a stylistic technique that's a favorite of Mark, and if we pay attention, we'll see it many times throughout his gospel. And this way that he presents this, this method of, of putting the information out there, oh, it has all sorts of fancy names in, in the different literature, but the most common, and I think the most helpful, is the image of a sandwich, What Mark does is that he'll begin a story, and that's the first slice of bread in our, our sandwich here, and I'm sorry to be talking about this sandwich when we're getting on towards lunchtime, but bear with me. So he begins the story, and then he will interrupt the story and, and relate another, a different but related story, and that's the, that's the filling, that's the meat in the sandwich, and then after that he'll return to the original story and finish that up, finish relating that. And that's the other slice of bread. So this is often referred to as a sandwich in Mark's, in Mark's teaching. And like I said, he does this in several points in this gospel, and he does it here. Maybe you caught it as we were reading along. And in this sandwich, we are reading about these two different evaluations of Jesus that some have of him. Uh, what we're going to do, though, so that we can kind of keep our thoughts together instead of starting and then stopping and then coming back to it, we'll deal with the first group, 
which is at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage, and then we'll deal with the, the, the middle of the sandwich. So we're going to start by looking at the question, what's up with Jesus according to the first group? And the first group is his family. Remember that we are coming off of the record of Jesus going to the sea, uh, and Mark tells us that a great crowd followed. We've seen that again several times. A crowd, uh, he explained here in chapter 3, that is not just from the area where Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, but also from south of that in Israel and of even further south uh, in Idumea, and then from beyond the Jordan, and even from the Gentile areas up in the northwest uh, portion of the area. And Jesus has, as these groups have come, thronged to him, he has ministered to them. That he time and time again has healed the sick. He has cast unclean spirits out of many. He has been with them. He has attended to them. Jesus also, we saw last week, had gathered his disciples around him and after a night of prayer, remember that he chose 12 of them uh, to be his, his inner circle, to be his close companions, and to be those that he will later send out from himself with authority to go and to preach the gospel, both while he is living and, of course, after his death and resurrection when he ascends back into heaven, those same people, he will say to them, you are going to be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. And Jesus had chosen them, these 12, in our last passage that we looked at, these that he also called apostles. Just... A lot of ministry we've been reading about. And, of course, the way Mark presents this, he hasn't really given us a lot of teaching yet, has he? We'll see that. He will give us a lot of Jesus' teaching a little later, in the next chapter, in fact. But so far, it's just been actions. And it's been, as we've talked about many times, it's been very quick, from one thing to the next to the next. A lot of ministry, constant ministry seeing to the needs of others, seeing to the needs that, that they perceived, that they wanted Jesus to meet, and especially he's been meeting needs that they haven't seen, a spiritual needs as he preaches concerning the coming of the kingdom of God and as he calls people to faith and repentance. Jesus has been meeting both uh, their, their felt needs, their physical needs, and their spiritual needs. And he's been doing it constantly as we've been reading through Mark's gospel so far. And so today, in what might sound at first like an anticipation of a, maybe a bit of downtime, we read in verse 20 here, then he went home. Now that doesn't mean that he went back to Nazareth, where his original home was, where he was from. Home here probably means his adopted headquarters there in Capernaum, which is probably the home of, of Simon Peter and Andrew, two of those 12. This is where he's been staying. This is where he's sort of been basing his ministry. So we read that he went home, but then really in the same breath, Mark says, and the crowd gathered again. The people, the sick, the demon-possessed, uh, they, they come. 
as they have been coming. Or perhaps as what happened before, uh, others have brought them in some situations. Uh, they bring them to Jesus. They come to Jesus. And again, create such a crowd that the end of verse 20 tells us so much so that they could not even eat. No room, no time for even a meal. And Mark goes on to tell us that, that apparently the word of this, probably not just of this particular day, but word of this, this cycle, this situation that just seems to go on and on, that this news gets back to what, are, what is probably Jesus' family. Now, I say that because if you are reading uh, from the English Standard Version, which we are reading from, verse 21 says, and when his family heard it, but if you're reading from another translation, you may see something a little different. Instead of family, you may see the word friends or his own people. His own people is probably the closest to the actual uh, Greek version. Um, it, the word is not, or the phrase, is not super specific. But as we look at this, I think that the translation that we have uh, before us of his family is probably the best one. We'll have that confirmed to us when we get to the other slice of bread in our sandwich here. Uh, and that'll be down in verse 31. His family hears of this cycle of Jesus' ministry, of all the things that have been going on, and, and they decide that they need to come and to help. Verse 21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Well, what did they hear? What was the news that got to them back in Nazareth? Well, they had heard that everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds were sure to go. That they did not give him a minute's rest. That he did not take a minute's rest. And apparently the, the, the family is thinking, and he is all right with that? Doesn't he know that that can be bad without any, any rest? That he continues to re preach, that he continues to teach, he continues to heal and cast out demons and just pour himself out um, into these people. These people who are chasing him wherever he goes, like some sort of Hollywood celebrity. What's up with Jesus? What's wrong with our brother? Why is my son burning himself out like this? And so Mark says that they went out to seize him. They went to, to take charge of him, to take uh, possession of him. For they were saying... And here's their evaluation. He's out of his mind. He must, have, he must have taken leave of his senses, that he has this propensity, this willingness, this eagerness even, to put himself in the middle of these things, these huge crowds that are making it impossible for him to even get something to eat. Another thing that they might have heard about was, was Jesus' interaction with the, the religious authorities, the Pharisees, how he has sort of made fools out of them at times, that he has refused to 
to bow, as it were, to their regulations. That he's standing up to them, doing things that challenge their teaching and setting himself as a higher authority than them. What's up with Jesus? And so, again, here in verse 21, they went out to seize him. Maybe a kind of first century intervention here. And so they leave Nazareth, Mark tells us, um, a not too far distance away, that maybe 15 miles or so, and they come to Capernaum, or they leave for Capernaum. And that's where Mark leaves the story here in the text as we have it. To, to insert then the filling story, but we'll finish up by jumping down to verse 31 and see how this concludes. So we have this intervening story that Mark puts in, and then in verse 31 we, we see that here now they've arrived, arrived at the house where Jesus and this large crowd is. Um, and we're told here specifically who it is, and this is where we see the answer to the question, is this family or is this uh, friends or, or what? Mark tells us here that it was his mother and his brothers. Now, of course, these would be Jesus' half-brothers, sons of Mary and Joseph. Mark will name them later in his gospel. Jesus, of course, was the son of Mary, but not the son of Joseph but rather he was the Son of God and conceived by Mary through the miracle that was wrought by the Holy Spirit. So these are his half-brothers. And as they arrive, seeing the crowd, being unable to get in through the door, again, a similar episode, we saw that back with the paralytic in chapter 1, they call to Jesus from the outside. They, they holler in or send word in, uh, we're here to talk to our son, our brother. And really, this all is a setup to lead to what is the main point of this little story, which is not so much Jesus, or not so much his family's evaluation of who he is, but the point ends up rather being Jesus' evaluation of who his family is. And as word moves then from the outside where, where the family is to Jesus, it passes through, verse 32 says, a crowd that was sitting around him. Now certainly there were a lot of people sitting around him if you couldn't get in through the door. But these would be a, probably a closer circle of disciples, probably not the twelve, although they're probably included in it, though though there are others certainly that would be included in this close group that's setting nearer to, to Jesus. But word gets to those in the closest proximity to Jesus, and they then tell Jesus, we have it in the text here, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They're looking for you, waiting for you, wanting to talk to you. And Jesus then perhaps looking around, particularly, I think, at the twelve, as those other disciples who were following him, as well as them as well, uh, into whom he was pouring himself. Look at what verse 33 says. He says, and he answered them, that is the, the, the circle, the people that are giving him this news. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, we have to understand this properly, or we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand what what is going on here. Because we can read this, and it can seem rather rude of Jesus, like he's sort of dismissing his family as not really his family. But we don't want to take this as Jesus mistreating or showing any disrespect for his brothers, especially for his mother. He's not abandoning his family. He's not disowning his natural family. He cared deeply for them and cared for their uh, well-being. We do know that Jesus' brothers were not believers during Jesus' ministry. John 7, 5 tells us that, which is kind of an interesting thing. Imagine growing up with the Son of God, uh, living with, eating with, working, playing, sleeping in the same house with the eternal Son of God and not knowing it. On the other hand, if one of your siblings uh, was going around doing these things and people were claiming that he was the Son of God, it's probably not something that a sibling would readily agree with. So we might understand that. But we do know that later, uh, one of them, one of Jesus' brothers, James, that he eventually did come to believe on Christ, that he did join the church. He became a leader in the church. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, verse 17, and, and Acts 15, 13, tell us about that. And also, uh, this idea of, of being clear that Jesus is not disowning his, his family, you know, we have proof of that in, in what is really one of the most touching scenes of Jesus' ministry, where right at the end of his ministry, uh, while he is hanging on the cross in the midst of being torturously killed, he sees to the ongoing care of his mother. And it's just it's so wonderful, I just want to read that. Because it, sh- it shows how much Jesus loved his family. And that he, how far it is from the truth that he was having any, uh, that he was disowning them in any way. So in John 19, Uh, Verse 25, Jesus, of course, is near the end of his time on the cross. And John writes, uh, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which, if you remember, that is a way of speaking of John. That's the way John refers to himself. So when Jesus saw his mother and John standing nearby, the Apostle John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He wasn't talking about himself. He was saying, look at John. John is now your son. Then he said to the disciple, he said to John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Jesus hanging on the cross in all of the, the, the pain and the, 
the torture that that was, Jesus was concerned that he saw after his mom. So no, what is going on here back in Mark's gospel is is a statement of, of perspective, a statement of priority, not rejection. It's a teachable moment in, in this situation. It's a statement about the priority that Jesus had on those who would, could be considered his true and new family. Because for Jesus, as for you and I, our truest deepest, most intimate family is not even really our physical family. But it is the family of God into which we have been brought through the adoption of God. And that's Jesus' point here, that his closest relationship here on earth is not even the the physical one that he had with his mother and with his brothers, but is the brothers and sisters, or are the brothers and sisters that have been adopted by the Father into his family. And that Hebrews 2.11 tells us that he is now not ashamed to call us brothers. It's the spiritual family that he shared with those united by faith, uh, united to him by faith. Those, he said here in the text, who do the will of God. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's think about that for just a moment. Let that sink in. That you, Jesus considers you, and in fact you are, his family. You are his brother. You are his sister. That you, through Christ, by God's choice, by God's grace, you are called by Jesus, his brother, his sister, his mother. That is, we are his family. What an unbelievable thing that is. What an unbelievable thing that should be. That should just strike us and, and bring joy to our hearts. We used to sing a, a song in the church that I grew up in. Maybe you sang the, the same song that said, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm a part of the family, the family of God. And believer, this morning you are a part of that family. It went on and said, from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags under riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. And believer, this morning, you're not worthy to be here, to be in God's family, but praise God, you are. You have been adopted. Adopted by God, the creator of this universe. Adopted as his own special child. That he has set his love on you. A love that led him to send his son to die so that you could be adopted and be a part of that family. 
You have been adopted into the house of God, into the family of God. And it's if you, he says, if you do the will of God, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now that is not here a statement of strict law, we might call it, because then there wouldn't be anybody part of that family. But he's referring to doing God's will by, as John 6.29 says, believing on him whom the Father has sent. And Jesus said, these are my true family. And you know, we never want to dishonor our or neglect our physical family, even if they're unbelievers. God's law, in fact, commands us, we read it this morning, to honor our father and our mother. But our perspective, our perspective must be heavenly as well. Our priority is the family and the kingdom of God. We love our family and we love God's family. But when there's conflict between the two, our priority is God's family. Because our priority is God who has brought us into that family. In fact, it's in that understanding, in that context, with all of this kind of background that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, that whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying we must love him above all. It is the Lord our God that we are to love with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So Jesus' family here has come out of concern, out of loving concern that he is not thinking straight in the way he is acting, out of concern that Jesus is by by ministering so tirelessly that he's wearing himself out. And by coming against the Pharisees, he's putting himself in in religious danger, if not physical danger. And we will see that he is putting himself in physical danger. But their answer to the question, what's up with Jesus, is that he's out of his mind. And his family made this evaluation and took the action that they did out of love and out of concern to come and to help him, to draw him away, to get him away so that he can clear his mind, so that he can take breaks, to be rested, to be safe. But they did it out of love and out of concern. They evaluated him out of love and out of concern. The other group, to which we now turn, did not. Let's look at what's up with Jesus according to the scribes. And as we might expect, that is the other group, the scribes. Remember, they came out of the Pharisees. They were part of the Pharisees. They, they have their reasons to ask what's up with Jesus, this Jesus person. And they have their own very specific ideas here of the answer to that question. And they have come up to Capernaum to make that idea clear. When verse 22 mentions that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, it's telling us that the scribes didn't just happen to be in the area, that they came here for a purpose. Remember, they have gotten to the point of not just disliking Jesus, not just disagreeing with him and his popularity with the people, let alone his confrontations with them, Uh, but now they have gotten together. Remember, we read recently 
with a, another group, a political group, the Herodians. They have taken counsel with them to see how they might destroy Jesus. And now they've come to town again. They have found Jesus again ministering to ever-growing crowds. In fact, according to Luke 11, a parallel passage to this, Luke tells us that this encounter takes place in the context of Jesus casting out a demon from a man. That that's what happens just prior and, and what instigates this situation. The response of the scribes to that is given here in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He's possessed, is what the Pharisees, the scribes here are saying, by Beelzebul. In the Old Testament, uh, Beelzebul was the name of a Philistine deity, uh, but the title had been sort of generalized, and of course the context here makes it very clear that it was a reference to the prince of demons, to Satan himself. And the scribes are therefore saying, quite literally, quite bluntly, Jesus is possessed by Satan. That's their evaluation. That's their answer to the question, what's up with Jesus? What's up with Jesus? He's possessed by Satan. Not by some lower level demon, but by the prince of demons. And they say that when he is casting out these unclean spirits, that it is not the working of God, but is in fact the working of the devil himself. It says, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Beloved, this is about as vile and serious an accusation as one can imagine, as we'll see, to attribute the working of God to Satan and suggesting, as they are here, a, a complicity between the two, between Jesus and Satan, saying that the Holy Son of God was indwelt and empowered by the enemy of God, by the father of lies, that Jesus is possessed and therefore that he is in league somehow with Satan. Jesus is not just doing evil things, they're saying. He is evil. Notice as well that their charge is in the third person. He is possessed by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. In their typical manner, they're saying these things not to Jesus, but about Jesus. But also, as we've seen before, Jesus knows what they're saying. And Jesus then, verse 23, says to them, he calls them to him, and Mark says he speaks to them in a parable. Verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables. Now, we're going to talk more about parables when we get into chapter 4, and we see uh, several of them that are given. For now, we'll just say that a parable is a verbal comparison that's meant to illustrate a point. And so Jesus responds to them in, in several short parables, beginning with a simple question and followed by three answers that, is, that are designed to show the absurdity of what they just said. And we'll start there with the absurdity. We'll see that it goes on. But first, the absurdity. He says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? Really? Come on. Then he explains the question. 
he, he fills it out a little in verses 24 through 26. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. The point is, is that if Satan were empowering anyone to, to be casting out his own soldiers out of people, taking them out of the battle, he would be actively working against his own designs. And that's, that's somebody who's out of their mind. That's insane. That's stupid. And as I've said before, Satan is many things. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a hater of God's people. He, he is darkness. He is the prince of the power at work in this world. He's vain. He's many things, but he's not stupid. For him to fight against his own purposes would be the epitome of stupidity, of a, of a self-destructive battle plan. That's what Jesus is saying. And he concludes by saying as much. He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. So it makes no sense that Satan would cast out Satan. He says, but he's coming to an end. And by the way, Satan and his army and his powers and his schemes against God and his plans, that plot cannot stand. That plot will not stand. Satan and his schemes are coming to an end. But they are being brought to an end through the victory of Christ, not because of a tactical slip-up on Satan's part, not because of a self-destructive action like being divided against himself. Jesus mentions a kingdom divided against itself. Now there is a battle between two kingdoms going on here between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, but there is not a civil war within Satan's kingdom. That's Jesus' point. And then he follows up with an explanation of what is going on with Jesus casting out the demons. And what Jesus is saying here, again, using a parable to make the point, of what Jesus is saying by this word picture in verse 27 here, when he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying there is that by his casting out demons, by the preaching of the kingdom of God, uh, the gospel of God, he is binding up the devil. That he, Jesus, is revealing and demonstrating his divine power over Satan. He is dismantling Satan's kingdom. He is plundering his goods and shortly on the cross he will disarm Satan and his minions and put them, as Paul says, to an open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. By all of his working, Jesus is systematically destroying the works of the evil one. He is, by casting out unclean spirits, liberating men from the physical, the, the emotional coercion of the devil, just as he, through his ministry, especially on the cross, liberates men from the tyranny of the devil over their souls. Jesus is replacing darkness with light, transferring men from the kingdom of darkness into that kingdom of light, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. 
In his coming, Jesus' coming in his ministry, he has bound that strong man that he speaks of here, the devil. And he is now, through his ministry there in Galilee and elsewhere, plundering Satan's house, taking possession of what the devil claims are his. By the way, this is the binding of Satan that Revelation 20 verse 3 speaks of, and which is the start of that millennial period that we're still in today. So Jesus shows definitively that the scribes simply don't know what they're talking about when they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by, de- by being possessed by Satan. He is showing that their hatred for Christ has made them the stupid ones. So on one hand, for the scribes to say that Jesus is doing the work of Satan and casting out demons through a demonic power is the same as Satan casting out Satan, which is first of all absurd. But as I say, it's more than that. It's also dangerous, Jesus says. And Jesus moves from really a response to their charge to a warning to them in verses 28 through 31. And I know for some of you reading uh, the passage with us this morning, this is what you're probably looking forward to. Because these four verses have, have produced a great deal of confusion in the church and a great deal of soul-rending consternation on the part of fearful Christians who fear that they have committed this. In verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is what many speak of as the unpardonable sin. What is it? Well, first of all, it has to do with blasphemy, Jesus says. And what is blasphemy? Well, fortunately, Jesus gives us the answer to that. There is a technical answer to it. It's used in in different ways. But Jesus answers that for us in Matthew's record of this same incident. When he first says, just as he does here, he says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And then his next sentence, which Matthew records, Mark doesn't, he says, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So blasphemy is restated by Jesus as speaking a word against. Blasphemy has to do with what someone says or what someone uh, writes, an expression of an idea or a thought. And the particular idea concerns speaking against the Holy Spirit in a certain way. I mean, it's interesting that also in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us that blaspheming the Son is forgivable. And those who spoke so violently against Christ, accusing him of blasphemy, those, Jesus said, could be forgiven. In fact, from the cross, he prays that God would forgive them. And Paul confesses in 1 Timothy 1.13 that he was formerly a blasphemer. But Jesus says that can be forgiven. But blasphemy, he says, against the Holy Spirit cannot. He says that such that do that never have forgiveness, but are guilty of an eternal sin. 
What exactly does that blasphemy look like? Well, here's the answer you don't want to hear. We don't know exactly. I think we get a hint right at the end of our passage here today. Um, After warning about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Mark adds this. Right at the end of, of verse 35. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The scribes were looking at what was a work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew records Jesus saying that if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Which is a statement that confirms that it was by the Spirit of God that Jesus did this. And it is that work of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry That was part of bringing in the kingdom of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees here were so deluded, so utterly without the Spirit, so blind to the things of God, that they were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of an unholy spirit, the unholy spirit, if you will, the work of Satan. They said that what the Holy Spirit was doing was actually Satan doing. They were saying that he who, Jesus, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, given the Spirit without measure, had an unclean spirit. And it was those statements that prompted this warning from Jesus. Now, we should notice here that Jesus doesn't say that the scribes had committed this sin, either here or in Matthew's telling. Had they? Or hadn't they? We don't know. But this interchange is what prompts this warning from Jesus concerning this. So what can we say about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What can we say about this eternal sin? If we don't know exactly what it is, what can we say about it? Well, we can say that such blasphemy would involve, as we see here, a purposeful and decisive, verbal, declarative rejection and denunciation of the Holy Spirit, uh, who's, who's the only means of repentance and faith, such that if these scribes has not, have not crossed that line, they were dangerously close to it. We can say that. We can say that anyone who would commit this sin would be someone who was so hardened in their heart that they would not have any concern as to whether they had or not. And so, as you've probably heard, rightly heard, as a Christian, if you are worried that you have committed this sin, you can be sure that you haven't. We can say that. And we can say that without a doubt, God, who desires to save all of those that he has chosen to save, will keep and has the power to keep any true Christian from approaching that line. We know he's able to do it. We know he's able to keep people from sin. He did it with the the Pharaoh in Genesis 20. He kept David from sinning in 1 Samuel 25. If God wishes to save anyone, he is certainly able to keep that person from sinning any sin that would exclude them from being able, from being saved. 
We know those things. And if we go any farther, we're sort of inching into the area of speculation. But we know those things. So what was up with Jesus? His family thought he had lost his mind. But the truth is that he was fulfilling his ministry. To come, not to be served, but to serve. And ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. And he knew at every step, that every step, and every conflict with the Pharisees confirmed his purpose and would lead ultimately to that cross that he was destined to bear for you and me. That's what his family thought. And the scribes thought he was in league with the devil. And that it was by the power of Satan that he was casting out demons. But this showed that they were the ones who were missing what God was doing. It was they who were denying the truth. It was they who were of their father the devil, Jesus will say later. Because Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. But we can. And so let us today hear God's word. The word of God's Son who came to release us from all of our bondage to the devil and to our sin. And let us, people of God, rejoice that we have been adopted into that family of God in which we all share and which we will all, by the grace of God and the work of Christ, we will all enjoy into eternity. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, Lord, we again recognize that there are difficult things to understand in your word. We pray that your spirit would help us to be kept from speculation, but that we would seek out the truth of your word. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice that because Christ came and because he was involved in this ministry because, of he did, because he did the things that he did that we are able to call you Father and that we are able to call one another brother and sister in a way that is deeper than even our physical relationships here on earth. And we rejoice knowing that that relationship will last eternally. We pray, Father, that you would help us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to to rejoice in what God has done. We pray, Father, that we would see that he has come and that he has undertaken all of this for our sake, that we might say, Abba, Father. We pray this all in his name. Amen.